today on episode number 178 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Ramey Kalir talks about igniting our imagination in digital learning and pedagogy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I am so excited about today's guest, Ramey Kalir. He's an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at CU's Denver's School of Education and Human Development. I've had a chance to read his blog for a while, follow him on Twitter, and most recently been able to see him speak at the Digital Media and Learning Conference. And I'm just so excited to get today's chance to speak with him live for the show and introduce many of you to him. Ramey is a learning scientist who researches and designs educator learning associated with everyday digital media practices. He was a 2016 National Science Foundation Data Consortium Fellow and is currently an Open Educational Resource Research Fellow with the Open Education Group. Ramey is currently researching how educators learn via open and collaborative web annotation. Ramey, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. It's lovely to be here. It is lovely to be talking to you. And this is actually try number two for us as we had a, a meltdown of one of our very important pieces of podcasting equipment. And I just appreciate the second opportunity to actually talk to you as we record today. It's again, it's really lovely to join you. I'm, I'm really excited about our conversation. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is just the words that we use to describe ourselves. My doctoral students are, some of them, blogging for the first time. And I have them put together an About Me page. And then, of course, it makes me go look at my About Me page. And I go, every time I look at it, it needs work. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be done with that project. But I've been thinking about the words we use to describe ourselves. And you use one very early in your bio, and that is you refer to yourself as a learning scientist. And I'm curious, when did you first discover that that's what you do? You know, I went to graduate school and did my doctorate uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And while I was there, dabbled across multiple disciplinary boundaries. I did work in digital media and learning. Uh, I was formally in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. I was uh, working as a teacher educator in some of our pre-service teacher programs, and I was also uh, involved in various research groups, some of which concerned games and learning, focus on learning analytics, notions of play, all of which were saturated with uh, digital practices, digital identities, and, and the, the kind of everyday digital literacies that many of us now take for granted. And I mentioned all of that boundary crossing and all of that work because certain academic fields of study, like the field of learning sciences, honors and responds to these types of changes in both formal and informal learning environments. And so we've had now for you know, more than a few decades a field of the learning sciences uh, that cares deeply about how people learn, whether it's in a classroom or in a park, 
how their bodies, how their everyday practices, how their cultural traditions inform their learning, inform their social relationships. And I've been steeped in that work and I've been trained from a methodological perspective as a researcher. And I work as a designer with various communities as somebody who cares about the study of learning. And in my case, particularly the study of how educators learn. And so, as you noted, I, I tend to describe myself, particularly to some people, as a learning scientist. One of the things that I've observed about you is that you seem to me approach it in a more playful way than some of the other researchers that I have had the honor of being able to talk to on this show. Is that an accurate perception? Do you consider yourself in a, some sort of play mode while, while you're exploring these ideas and, and possibilities? You know, Bonnie, I, I appreciate you picking up on that. And I would agree. You know, I have spent some time in my career formally studying both games and play. I've written a little bit about that and whether that's game-based learning in classrooms or notions of playfulness in educator pedagogy. So that is of interest to me. But of course, I love what I do and mm -hmm. I love the people that I work with. And I find that a sense of open-ended inquiry, a notion of inherent motivation and creative approaches to the kind of work that I produce and the kind of work that motivates me to, to be in higher education. Yeah, it's, it can be quite playful and creative. And if it wasn't, uh, I don't know if I'd be doing the work I do. One of the things that I discovered that we both have in common, I mean, we have actually a lot more than this in common I've already discovered, but we are both fans of a podcast called On Being. And yes. one of the recent episodes was a woman whose research is in mindfulness and also mindlessness. And, and she contrasted those things. But one of the things I really picked up on, which I think has made me already a better teacher, and it's only been four days since I listened <laughs> to the episode, but, well, some of these things, you know, you discover that you had done just intuitively, but then you realize there's some research to back it up. And I've been really working at making my doctoral students have a better experience as they I teach a class on leadership and technology for educators. And they're just so many times so stressed out when they meet me. And this has caused some difficulty for me in the past. And then I listened to her describe a study, which it seems so intuitive, but I just found it, it profound that if we tell people in a research environment that what you're doing right now is work, and then we ask you, how much would you need us to pay you as research subjects in order to do this again in the future? You're going to price yourself much higher and also perceive that you worked a lot harder than if we describe what you're doing as play. Even if we have you doing the exact same thing, in her case, they were doing something with comics or drawings or something that would naturally just seem playful for most of us. But how they described it made a, a profound difference in how people perceived how much they should be paid to be research subjects and also how much they should enjoy whatever it is they're doing. And that, that was one of the things I was encouraging my students in, a, in an email after I listened that I had been encouraging them, I know this is really hard. And I know that it feels like this is so insurmountable what I'm asking you to do in eight weeks, but could you kind of seem like you're playing a little bit and just try what, what happens if I click here or what? And, and try to take on that. And then I realized there's actually a body of research to back up this idea of the benefits of playfulness. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, it reminds me that play is not a synonym for fun. Yeah. And that for folks who've studied play and folks who I think, who consider the kind of critical dimensions of playfulness, play can be very transgressive. Play can be a form of critique. You mentioned this podcast on being, 
there's a quote from uh, from it that I know you've, you've shared with me that concerns imagination. Play is a way of perhaps envisioning alternative futures, some of which might be quite different than some of the conditions that people might live under now. And so when we think of play, uh, we can think of you know, everything from you know, theater of the oppressed and the work of Augusto Ball to you know, play as a means of uh, social cohesion to play as a means of, of, of critical resistance. And so it's not all so-called fun and games. Um, one of my favorite uh, philosophers who written, who's written about playing games talks about playfulness as, as being perhaps the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. And so we need to think about the obstacles that we can put in front of ourselves and overcome in voluntary ways, even if we're choosing to do that entirely from a voluntary stance. One of your recent keynotes, and I have to say, it cracked me up because I thought if I was given the topic to talk about all three of these things, my head might explode. But you you gave a talk on leadership, equity, and creativity. And just to really throw a softball at you, we'll just get rid of one of those for the time being and just talk about equity and creativity. I wonder if you could spend a few minutes sharing some of the ways in which you have observed equity and creativity intersecting. Sure. Well, I'll give a first bit of context. The keynote I gave was a regional conference here in the Denver metro area put on by Metropolitan State University. It's their technology, uh, teaching uh, and learning with technology symposium. Uh, And the role I played as the keynote was not to just say some inspiring things or throw some spaghetti at the wall and see what would stick, but to set up a day of design work. And so the hundred odd people that came to this conference were there to really get their hands dirty as higher education faculty, administrators, staff, and others who were thinking and working at the intersections of these three core themes. And so attendees came to this conference knowing that they were going to spend a day together working around ideas of creativity or working to analyze, discuss, and tackle notions of equity in higher education. And you also mentioned the third theme of the day, which is leadership. And so my role in giving this keynote was to provide some examples and some provocative means of thinking about these themes and then bringing folks into a day of, of hands-on design work. So that was context. But to your question, Bonnie, where do themes like creativity and equity intersect? One of the communities that's been inspiring me for the last number of years that I think brings together this work in a nice way is the broad digital pedagogy community. And I know you've had quite a few guests on this podcast over the years who have been affiliated in various ways with the DigPed community. And I think when thinking about, when I, when I think of those folks and how they think of instructional design, of pedagogy, of engagement in online spaces, they often do so first from a stance of creativity. How can we move around the constraints of a particular uh, learning management system? How can we bring discussions to life? How do we think more fluidly about student-teacher relationships or inherently some of the power dynamics that exist within any teaching and learning setting, whether it's online or off? So there's a sense of creativity there, of, of, of blurring boundaries, of pushing boundaries. And of course, that often then dovetails with notions of equity, of critiquing particular power arrangements, dynamics, uh, or inequities that might pervade some of the tools that we choose to use, some of the types of uh, interactions that become patterns or habits in our teaching over time. 
And I think that many of the folks who are, who are working and writing and sharing at the intersection uh, of that community are thinking really uh, critically about that intersection of creativity and equity. And in this keynote I gave, I mentioned some of the work that that uh, DigPed community has done both nationally and now also the work that I'm helping to support on my campus. And briefly, I'll mention that we have a, an initiative for our faculty at the University of Colorado in Denver called Think Studio. And Think Studio is an incubator of critical digital pedagogy on our campus that's really trying to bring to light these intersections that you mentioned, the intersections between creative and critical pedagogy, more equitable approaches to the design and facilitation of courses, both online and face-to-face, and the type of leadership, faculty leadership, that is necessary to grow that work um, at our institution. You talked about this quote that you and I had shared before starting, and it's from Daniel Kellegman, and he wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a wonderful book for anyone that's not read it. And he's a Nobel Prize winner. He won a Nobel Prize for being one of the people to develop and, and I don't know if create is the right word, but came up with behavioral economics. And the context for this quote is he's talking about his love of changing his mind. And I've just been intrigued with this whole idea of people that I consider to be brilliant who really foster changing their mind. I still will never forget the 75th episode of one of my podcasts that I love to listen to called Very Bad Wizards. And I have talked about this before on the show, but it's been so long that if you haven't been listening for eons, you probably won't know what I'm talking about, listeners. But their 75th episode, they had these amazing thinkers and researchers. I mean, just at every kind of amazing school you could possibly think of come on and talk about within the last five years, what is something that they have changed their mind about. And I just, I thought, oh my gosh, that it's, it's, I need to remember that very smart people are highly capable of also changing their minds about things because that can help me be a better activist in the areas that I want to be in my life and the kind of change that I hope to be just some small part of creating in this world. So the Daniel uh, quote, the Daniel Kellogman quote just really struck me because he talks about imagination, but he's also taking that context of imagination and applying it to this idea of changing our minds about things and thinking critically. So here's the quote, and then I'll, of course, give you some time to respond and reflect on what he said. His quote is, overconfidence is really associated with a failure of imagination. When you cannot imagine an alternative to your belief, you are convinced that your belief is true. And one of the ways in which I thought that might apply to some of the work that you've done is in this area of writing our civic future. So do you want to share a little bit about that and maybe yeah. how you're sort of helping people uh, fight against overconfidence? Well, you know, the first, so again, a lovely quote on, on notions of truth and belief reminds me of Stuart Firestein's book, Ignorance, which I know we will talk about recommendations Later on in our conversation today, although now I found myself recommending, highly, highly encouraging folks to read Firestein's book on ignorance, he writes about the need to develop high-quality ignorance. And I have, whether by design or by stumbling into certain situations, often find myself in, in circumstances where I need to develop high-quality ignorance. I need to think very carefully about what it is that I don't know, whether it's how to design a research study, how to work on a team how to ask a particular type of question, 
how to mentor uh, a doctoral student, uh, how to write a research paper. And this idea of, of, of cultivating high-quality ignorance is particularly necessary in, 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 in an age when we're, of course, saturated with knowledge, much of which can be contested. But, of course, our ability to change our minds about what kind of counts, what's true, and what works in particular circumstances is very important. So, I, again, I really appreciate this quote. So, yeah, you mentioned briefly that, that the, the idea of, of imagining alternative ways of perhaps reading a text or seeing how other people think or having conversations about particular ideas is something that I'm very interested in these days. I've always been quite interested in how people come together, have conversations, and begin to uh, engage with, with one another in critical ways. It's led me in, in, briefly to get interested in the idea of web annotation and distributed tools that are open, that are public, that are interoperable, that can bring communities of people together to have critical conversations about things that they care about. And, and, and in short, I've really had the honor of co-founding and now working on a project called The Marginal Syllabus with folks from the National Writing Project my university, local K-12 educators, that brings together uh, educators, pre-service teachers, school administrators, learning scientists, and others who are having conversations about educational equity and are doing so using web annotation. And I can talk more about what that means and what that looks like, but it is a way in which people's ideas can be challenged, people can ask questions of themselves or of authors, People can bring texts into their professional context and make it relevant to perhaps the questions that they're asking about in their day-to-day work. I think it probably be would be helpful to remind listeners we have talked about it before, but I have I'm not sure I have been very good about calling it web annotation. So people might remember me calling it social reading or sure. social annotations. Of course, there's lots of different ways we could describe this, but why don't you talk a little bit about what it would be like if you and I were both participating in web annotation together or even people listening, yeah. Well, I'll I'll briefly mention that Mosaic, which was the very first web browser, had annotation built in. The idea of marking up a text, of adding margins to a book or highlighting parts of a paragraph, putting a sticky note into a text, whether that's a material book or something online. When you read a novel and you see expert footnotes that explain language in new ways, these are all ways that annotation has been used for millennia in some cases, whether or not we're talking about the internet. But again, our very first web browser, Mosaic, had annotation baked into its source code. And over the years, there have been uh, many, many, many annotation platforms that allow readers of the internet to add their voice, to layer their thinking atop a document, atop a text. And I've become particularly entangled with, in the best of sense, a very unique nonprofit organization called Hypothesis that has developed an open source platform for web annotation. And it could allow for, as you mentioned, Bonnie, social reading or bringing multiple people together atop of a text to read something and then to have a conversation, essentially, to use annotation as a means of, in our project, like convening a geeky book club. Let's all gather atop a text and begin to talk about what matters to us. And so this project that I've mentioned, Marginal Syllabus, is an intentional technical 
and political double entendre. It's technical in the sense that, you know, margins are places now where we can have a conversation. Annotation happens in the margins of texts. But the texts that we're choosing to read are not just anything about education, like classroom management or grading policy. Rather, we're talking with authors and we're reading texts that are marginal or contrary to some of the dominant norms that pervade education. And that, of course, really helps us to focus on notions of educational equity. And so the marginal syllabus is now in its second year. Last year, during our first pilot year, we convened nine conversations with 10 different partner authors. We brought together nearly 75 educators who participated in these open, these public conversations using the Hypothesis platform. And we've now grown that effort into a more formal partnership with the National Writing Project, an educator innovator. And they've been a host and will continue to host the 2017-18 marginal syllabus, all of which is organized around the theme of writing our civic futures. And we have a variety of author partnerships and also publisher partnerships. People are coming together reading texts about civic engagement and having conversations using web annotation. The people who are doing that are educators and those conversations are not only about civic engagement, but the application of these ideas to everyday classroom practice. We talked earlier about this notion of playfulness. And I think that probably since I, my first career out of college was teaching computer classes and I, a lot of my daily life was just discovering new things that technology could do. And and my so my tendency is to just go, wow, that's really cool that you can do that. And then and then I'll think, but why would you want to do that? <laughs> and because if I come across somebody else that they would be if I described if I described from a very elementary standpoint, you know, you can put this layer and then you could do this. And then there's kind of this, but why would you want to do that? And that's not my first thought is to think like, well, why would I ever want to do that? It's just more like, wow, look, you could do this with, that's really neat. I didn't know you could do that. And so I'm wondering what have been some of the surprises that have come up for you? Cause you really seem to have such a good imagination. I need people like you to help me imagine what I could possibly use these tools for, but you seem to just already have that, that really gift for yourself of just being able to imagine it. What what about these projects was surprising to you that was different from how you initially had envisioned it? Sure, that's a great question, Bonnie. Why would educators, for example, jump into this type of opportunity? One, I see this as an opportunity to design open professional learning. We know that educators are learning because their peers, their colleagues in their networks say, hey, here's a professionally relevant opportunity. And I think we're seeing now, and I'm speaking quite broadly, the emergence of everything from Twitter chats to other opportunities that allow educators free, public, socially networked opportunities that are relevant to their professional learning. A lot of those instances, though, like Twitter chats, seem to be kind of bereft of context. And in the case of web annotation, we turn texts into contexts for professional learning. So that's one thing that I found to be both surprising and, and very promising. Hmm. The other thing, particularly about our marginal syllabus project, are author partnerships. We partner with authors who are writing these texts, whether those are classroom teachers, higher education professors, scholars, researchers, 
And so there's a way of having that book club extend almost into an ask the author type of interaction. And we're seeing that now in our current November conversation, which is about civic imagination. And the two scholars, Nicole Mira and Ontario Garcia, whom we're reading, are joining us in the margins and so we can have an exchange. And by talking with authors and by turning texts into contexts, we also begin to change notions of voice and authority. Just because something's been published on the web, just because a research article has been finished and put out there, it's gone through peer review, that doesn't mean that the conversation is over. In fact, maybe the conversation is just beginning. But of course, who's invited into that conversation, who's able to participate, who's able to share their questions, that's where web annotation allows for a more participatory, dare I say, more democratic approach to interaction. Mm. Are there any other particular surprises of how this whole thing has come about that, that for you, you're thinking this is so much bigger than I imagined when we first got started? You know, just yesterday, I had a teacher educator at a university bring the online marginal syllabus conversation into her classroom teaching. And so she was organizing her pre-service teachers into groups of students who were then collectively and collaboratively reading our online text and then participating in the conversation. I'm really curious about how online activity, the ways in which web annotation mediates interaction in a digital space, is complemented by face-to-face -face discussions, classroom conversations. There's an interesting hybridity there. And I think that there are interesting literacy practices that are crossing both classroom and online settings, literacy practices that are professionally relevant, very much drawing upon everyday media practices that are really of interest to me. And I look forward to researching that uh, in the future. This is the point in the show where we each get to give recommendations. And my recommendation is going to be that people go and read a post that Mahat Bali had written for Prof Hacker, where she provides some ways that we might get started in participating in these collaborative annotations. This is one of those things that you would sort of have to know that it existed. I mean, you could create a hypothesis account, you could install the extension in your browser, that extension sort of opens up a window of a view into whatever this layer is that exists on top of somebody's website. But if you were to go to, to teachinginhighered.com and open up the window to look at the annotation layer, to my knowledge, it would be blank. Although we should probably fill this episode <laughs> with some annotations just to get some practice doing it. So I hope to be wrong about this, you know, a couple weeks after this episode airs. So I since it might be hard for you to have this sense of imagination, like Ramey's talking about, Maha's post would give you the ability to say, oh, I'm really interested in going and checking out that one, check out that one, and then you can see this layer of the web that otherwise, without a hypothesis account, would otherwise be invisible to you. Yeah, so that's my recommendation that people go check out her post and try one. Or of course, I'll have in the show notes for this episode, which will be at Teaching in Higher Ed dot com slash 178, all of the other ones that Ramey mentioned as well. So there'll be lots of places for you if you decide to get a hypothesis account and want to try some of this out. There'll be lots of places to go explore. That's great. And I'm going to recommend a few folks who I know have been uh, playing around with annotation in some very interesting ways. One is Alan Levine. His Twitter handle is at Cogdog. And he, of course, is famous in various online communities for really 
brokering the DS106 community, launching that, promoting that, leading that in so many ways. But as regards annotation, he's been incorporating web annotation into some of his more recent endeavors, including the networked narratives or NetNAR community, along with his colleague Mia Zamora. And I would also recommend another scholar and annotation researcher, Juan Pablo Alperin. His Twitter handle is at Juan Commander. And he's been researching annotation in terms of his own classroom teaching, as well as faculty adoption of annotation practices in their own teaching, and is a big open access advocate. And so both folk, uh, bo- both those folks have been really pushing annotation in some interesting directions from teaching and learning perspectives and from design perspectives as well. You mentioned Alan Levine, and just because we had shared about playfulness earlier in the episode, I've been talking about him in a couple of keynotes that I've done recently, because one of the things I love about his net narrative site, which I will link to in the show notes, is that he has in the upper right-hand corner, he has what's called a hamburger menu, which you've seen these, but you probably don't realize that's what they're called, but it's a little icon that shows up sometimes on mobile devices, but now more and more, just even when you're on your computer on the web, it's the three lines, horizontal lines, a button that would indicate, oh, there's a menu under here to click on. So again, those of you listening, if you're not familiar with the term hamburger menu, you've seen these before. So he has a hamburger menu in the upper right-hand corner of his site. And right next to it are the words, do not click. And this is just so indicative of his playfulness and how he just invites learners to just engage in such fun and creative ways. And so, of course, what do we do? We, we click because it says don't click, but you know he wants you to click. And so it opens up an entire back door view of his site to all these other things that you can go and explore. And I just, I love his inspiration that he's been for me with that whole idea of playfulness as well. And I just keep thinking about that as far as my own course design and wanting to be better at what I do. So he's great, really good reference. And Juan Pablo, I'm not familiar with, so I'm so excited to have someone new to connect with and start to learn more about too. Absolutely. They're both just great resources and lovely people. Well, I am so glad that you invested the time to come on the show. And in fact, twice, (laughs) this time for real. (laughs) And it's been such a pleasure. I got to hear you present in person at the Digital Media and Learning Conference. And that was wonderful because you brought in so many other people that have ignited your imagination too. So I'll actually link to that in the show notes so people can go and see some of the people that you didn't mention who've inspired you as well. And just thank you so much for your time today. Bonnie, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to connect and I hope we'll have future conversations. I had such a great time talking today to Ramey Callier and just thanks so much to him for being willing to come on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to give a rating or a review to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, it's really easy to do from within whatever podcast player you use to listen. So if it's iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app, you just go look for Teaching in Higher Ed and there's a place to give ratings or reviews. The reason I bring it up is I don't bring it up too often anymore, but we're so close to having a nice, good 100 reviews and I'd love to see it bump over 100 and just be able to expose more people to the show. So if you'd be willing to take just a quick minute, it'll take you less than a minute to do it, a number of stars for the show, or you could even write a few words about what you've been able to take away from listening. Thanks to all of you who take action on this and to those of you who already have, really appreciate those reviews that come in. They really just make my day and again, help other people discover. Thanks so much for listening and I look forward to seeing you next time. 